0: Hi there, I'm Amanda Robson, a student journalist at Monash University. This Mojo News podcast is recorded on the land of the Kulin Nation and I wish to acknowledge and pay my respect to the people and their elders, past, present and emerging.
1: No paper is perfectly fair.
0: Whenever you have diverse groups, you have a smorgasbord of views and our Our democracy will be our biggest national asset. You are listening to... Constructive Conversations with Stan Grant. Australia is a representative, democratic country. That means we elect a government to make important decisions on our behalf, to develop national policies enact laws, and to represent us on a global stage. To be a democracy also means that there is a need to have a crucial space for public debate that is fair and informative. That's where the media comes in. Today, Stan and I are going to have a chat about what media's role is in our democracy. Media is known as the fourth estate, in acknowledgement of its role in the political process. Essentially, this means that media is supposed to act as a watchdog, holding those with political power accountable, exposing corruption and informing people of events that affect our democracy. To fulfil this role, the media must provide a public platform for a diverse range of voices to be heard in an equitable and constructive manner. So the big question is, are Australians being provided with a balanced view on politics which will allow us to make informed decisions? Hi Stan, thanks for joining me again this week. You have been in the industry for 40 years now, what sort of changes have you seen in regards to the role of media in either strengthening or destroying democracy?
1: Thanks Amanda for having me and uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Well, let me look at what is the same first of all, is that we have a responsibility and it's a, uh, it's a very important responsibility and we can often oil the wheels of democracy. We can be a voice of conscience We can be a voice of of reason and justice. We can open up spaces for people to have important conversations and we can be a place of accountability. Um, Storytelling is still the same, I think, regardless of whatever technological changes we've had. Storytelling and the importance of being able to see ourselves through our stories and connect to each other through our stories, I think is is absolutely vital. And it's certainly been a a constant throughout my life as I've reported from different places, different cultures, um, different political systems, to be able to connect at a human level and tell the stories often of of human beings, what we would call ordinary people they were absolutely not ordinary, um, often living through extraordinary times and being able to, bring those stories to a wider audience in a way that reveals something about ourselves as well. And I think that's that's a cornerstone, a, a key component of journalism that I don't think has ever changed. What has changed, I think, is our ability to do that. I think technology has transformed our industry. It's certainly unrecognizable from when I came into journalism. The ability to report from anywhere in real time just simply didn't exist and it would have been unimaginable when I came into journalism to think that I'd be at the highest peak of the Hindu kush on the Afghan-Pakistan border with nothing but a small camera and a laptop and a little device to connect me to a satellite and all of this fitting into a briefcase and reporting live around the world to CNN. That would have been unimaginable. It's created incredible opportunities, of course. It's shrunk our world. It has brought the world front and centre to us in ways that we had not previously experienced. Um, But it's also created its own issues, and that is that technology has sped up news. We often have to make decisions immediately, um, often without the necessary or required or what you would hope for is the, the, the reasonable sort of considerations that often go into that. It means that, uh, that people are expected to respond immediately to events and that generates its own momentum. The word I often use is adrenalized. You know, we're running on adrenaline and the media itself in a 24-7 environment is incredibly adrenalized. The business model has changed uh, and it has meant that there is a greater competition for shrinking resources And technology and the business model changes means that there has been an increasing polarisation, I think, that's gone hand in hand or maybe even has precipitated a weakening of democracy and the safeguards of democracy, a heightened tribalism and a heightened contest in our democracies uh, that the media itself is now generating as well as just narrating, just commentating or just facilitating. It's also generating. So, look, it's a, it's a very different environment that has amazing opportunities, but there are also great responsibilities. And that line between serving our public or often poisoning discourse is becoming much more blurred. And the contest of voices in democracy means that there is a greater weight being placed on the institutions of our democracy, and journalism is one of them. And I think we can see those institutions struggling to hold that weight. And that's certainly true of, of journalism. So it's, it's, it's an amazing transformation when I first walked into a newsroom.
0: Yeah, I mean, as a consumer of journalism, why is it that we have to look at multiple publications to understand what is really happening?
1: But I think, again, we live in much more contested times, polarized times, a time of the uh, of an erosion of trust and faith in our democracies. And that's, that's evident. we see that in all of the, all the various researchers and polls and, and various studies into the state of democracy around the world. And we see this in our everyday life. Um, I don't think it's ever been a bad thing to read widely. I would never trust one source of information because everybody brings their own perspective Um and it's framed by your own cultural uh, settings as well. So I think it's always been wise to read very widely and I, I certainly do. I make a point of reading up things that maybe you know challenge my own particular viewpoint of the world as well. I think that's really an important thing to do and uh, and it can lead to changing your mind on things, which is which is really good. I think whenever someone on the balance of evidence and argument, changes their mind. It's healthy for democracy. That's what we're meant to do. So so I think it's good to be able to do that. I, I don't know that both sides of the story is enough. I don't know that objectivity is enough because I know that none of us are. I think we all come to something with our own frame of reference. The challenge for anybody and any journalist or anyone involved in public discussion is to actually be able to, see past your own biases or your own experiences to bring those things to the discussion but have the generosity to see someone else's point of view as well. Um, I don't think there are both sides to all stories. I think some things are absolutely, totally, unequivocally wrong. It's not evil in our world. And I think part of journalism's role is to actually see that. You don't platform evil, um, violence, you know, these things are, there are no objective ways of looking at that. It doesn't mean that we don't seek to understand it. I think understanding the roots and the causes of those things is vital. Platforming them, giving people equal voice, equal weight when you are speaking for a position of unequivocal evil or wrongdoing, I think if we can, re- if that is where journalism ends up, we end up, in, end up in some moral relativism, but we don't know what truth is. And we certainly don't know what is moral. So I think it's, it's always healthy to read widely, to challenge your own points of view. And it's always healthy to be able to see what perspective you're bringing to this so-called objectivity or balance that often journalists hide behind.
0: With the amalgamation of, say, the Nine Network or even like mass media, how can we decipher our news if we've got such a monopoly of just big voices and large companies.
1: It makes it, it, makes it difficult and it puts, the, um, it puts a lot of the, the onus onto the consumer of those products, of that news, to be able to, uh, to make discerning decisions about where they go and, and what they trust. And the market has a role to play in that, and I think we're seeing that anyway. I think there is, the market indicates that there has been a collapse in support for what we see as legacy or, or quote, unquote, mainstream media. Um, all readership, listenership, viewership is down. Uh, that's intensified the competition for resources. It's like people at media companies are fighting over the last drop of water uh, rather than actually looking at where there are other opportunities um, in really serving the public. And the public are gravitating to different sources. Uh, authenticity matters a lot now. And people often go to sources that they believe speak to their worldview. You see the rise of the the podcaster, the influential podcaster, and long form interviews, which are terrific. I think they're really useful. But the discernment part of this is to be able to say there is a danger too when you leave the curated space of mainstream media. To be captured by the echo chamber, to only go to those things or those people that you believe represents a particular worldview that you have. And that doesn't challenge that worldview. So again, it's up to us to be able to be discerning and and discriminate between various forms of media to be able to go to that. So I think I think, you know, that puts a lot of that puts a lot of pressure on us as well. And we need to be active participants in that. And and I think, you know, from the legacy media, mainstream media as well. Eventually, the well is going to run dry, and we're going to have to be able to see what a twenty-first century media looks like in this changing technology, changing business model, contested world—a a world where it is much smaller. We have shrunk the distance and space and time between us um, and, you know, put, take that into the fourth industrial revolution and the transformation of communications and artificial intelligence. And that's only going to create new pathways, new opportunities, but enormous challenges as well. So, look, it's a, it's a very complicated picture. We're navigating this in, in real time. The industry is having to adapt and people are making their own decisions in a world of greater opportunity, but also heightened risk.
0: Even now, we see that media outlets are seen as partisan. Does that limit the type of people likely to agree to be interviewed by specific media outlets? Do you think the interview process has become too antagonistic?
1: It, it always has been. Um, it has, the media has always been partisan. Um, it's been traditional for media outlets, um, newspapers in particular, to declare on the eve of an election who they believe the public should support in editorials and newspapers have always had you know, opinion pages and now with 24-7 news. Um, there is an endless blizzard of, of opinion and discussion, which can be healthy. I think, you know, if, if again, if you are discerning and if you bring your an open mind to this, then we can hear a much broader range of views. One of the things of social media, which, yeah, at its worst, I think, and I think overwhelmingly, actually, the argument could be for the toxicity of it. But it's also democratized some spaces. You know, I covered the Arab Spring, and the Arab Spring grew out of the democratization of political space by social media. So there are as there are voices we're hearing now from, you know, what we call the so-called global south who may have been ignored before um, that we hadn't been hearing when there was a concentration of power into elite hands and only select voices were heard. that That's part of the um, disruptive nature of technology and the changes that it has on how we communicate in public spaces and who gets to communicate. So it it, it, it's, it, it is a much more, you know, um, Contested and challenging space to be in. Um, it, it it's it's in terms of the way we interview or bring ourselves to that. I think there is in again we want to look broadly at mainstream media um, a cynicism that worries me. I think there is uh, a prosecutorial aspect to it that often doesn't allow for a more open, informative conversation. I think questions are often framed in an accusatory way that creates a defensiveness that doesn't necessarily lead to a more informed public. I think journalists uh, seek to score their own points and the sort of gotcha question that gets in the way again of real information. Journalists may feel better about themselves and but it's not necessarily helping our democracy. Um, the culture of journalism rewards a lot of that behaviour and journalists love peer, uh, you know, peer approval. Um, and again, I don't think that's entirely healthy. So I think that probably explains again why people are saying, I don't want that anymore. And they're, they're increasingly turning away and they're seeking other forms of conversation. So the, the long form podcast conversation that can go on for two hours and can probe in different ways, different aspects of a person's life experience, arguments, political perspectives is often a much more interesting, engaging and informative way to be able to enter into that public discourse than the truncated, heightened, adrenalized, aggressive, cynical five or 10 minute interview, not even 10 minutes, we rarely do, do that. But a five-minute interview on a, you know, a, a primetime commercial television current affairs program or ABC program, um, mm-hmm. I ever knew from doing Q&A that there were limits within the, 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 the program itself and the design of the program and the nature of the contest and the voices to be heard that impeded what I thought should have been more informative conversations became more um, more confrontational conversations. So again, but people are looking past that and they're going elsewhere and that's healthy and the media needs to to look at that and ask themselves what they're doing wrong.
0: We look at media and we see that majority of them clearly have an agenda when reporting on issues and right now the voice, the referendum. There are some outlets that are not providing that balance and balance is a fundamental element of journalism, no. and we're seeing this false balance infiltrating our media consumption. So how healthy is that for our democracy?
1: You know, I like to to just interrogate terms, and even balance is a very loaded term. Whose balance? On whose terms? Who gets to decide? Which voices are deemed to be have a seat at the table? Balance? I don't live in a balanced world. None of us do. Our families are not balanced. We don't sit around a dinner table and divide ourselves up into equal camps of yes or no on a particular opinion. We have, we have really interesting conversations around the dinner table. I think we're contradictory and we're complex. I like paradox rather than balance. I like the person who can disagree with themselves because I often do. I like gray areas. I like nuance. But that's difficult for me Media does not deal well with nuance. It likes simplicity. It likes one person versus another person. Every time, and I'll say this, every single time I have been, I have entered the media space, whether it be as a participant, um, whether it be as someone being interviewed, um, I feel reduced. I feel as if people want to reduce me and what I'm saying to a point of of often meaninglessness, and certainly it loses a lot of context, um, and you feel diminished by the experience. I increasingly prefer writing and my own writing, where on my terms, I can probe the grayness, the the paradox, the complexity, the nuance. I like to deliver speeches or lectures where, again, you can grapple with nuance in a way that is not reduced by media, but even when I do that, I will find that it's often then reinterpreted or reported in a way that is productive. So I think you talk about balance. I'm more concerned about the productive nature of media. Um, I'm more concerned about uh, the the way we are diminished by public discourse. Um, in terms of bias, well organizations, commercial organizations in particular, um, seek to serve a market. They are businesses. Are they in news or are they in the news business? And we shouldn't overlook the business aspect. They are commercial entities. They're trying to sell you a different brand of soap suds and they have their market, like anyone marketing a product. um, I still think Um, To be generous about this, that organisations that clearly, I think, have a particular viewpoint, whether you want to call it a bias, it may be more considered than just an instinctive bias, but may be a viewpoint, still allow space within their publications for dissenting views. Maybe not to the same extent and certainly not balanced, as you might say. But they are there, and while ever we have that dissenting voice, I think we need to hold on to that because that's really critical. You look at places like the ABC, for instance, which is a publicly funded space, which again is trying to be a space of neutrality, I suppose, for a broader conversation amongst the Australian people, um, that is also informed by the people who work there. And I can tell you, having worked there, that the people who work there often share a particular worldview, often come from a very similar background, often have attended the same private schools, lived in the same postcodes, or been to the same universities. That's inevitable. But how do we see beyond that? That's the challenge of media.
0: Yeah. Let's bring it back to the voice and conversations that we're having around the voice. Do you think that it's democratic?
1: Oh, it is. It is democratic. I mean, there is, in, in many ways, you know, d- democracy, as they say, is like making sausages. Um, you don't want to see how that how it's done. It can be very messy, uh, but but it's democratic. I mean, we're having conversations that you can't have in autocratic countries. I've worked and lived in countries where we don't have the right to protest. We don't have the right to have dissenting views. I think it is democratic and it's robust. It can be very aggressive. Um, when you open up a space for that, you also open the door to the worst of us as well, um, as well as the best of us. I, I block out, personally, a lot of the noise. I mean, for me, and we discussed this on the program last week, uh, there is a fundamental question here. If you strip away all of the, the noise, the rhetoric, and the distractions, the diversions, the ugliness, there is a fundamental question. What is our constitution? Is our constitution and our liberal democracy capable of holding the weight of First Nations, Aboriginal, and Torres Strait Islander people who have faced an existential struggle to survive and still occupy the worst when it comes to our socioeconomic equality uh, that have an historical claim? for justice in Australia uh, and an antiquity and a sovereignty that needs to somehow, or Aboriginal people would argue, needs to be incorporated within our democracy. Is our constitution and our liberal democracy capable of of carrying that weight? Is our constitution the right place to put a recognition in terms of a voice? That's That's the fundamental question. You know, I've, I've read some wonderful articles. There was a wonderful article that I shared recently with other people that was on the ABC Religion and Ethics page um, looking at the moral implications of voting no, written by a political philosopher, better than anything I've read from any journalist. So I seek out the things that try to bring rationality, um, reasonable discussion, informed, evidential um, and and philosophical contributions to this. But I but I understand that that's not the public space, and the public space is much more contested and often much more vile. We've seen some of the worst of this, but that's democracy, and there is nothing more democratic in a sense than a referendum. It's not we're not you know voting to someone who then distributes their preferences to someone else. It's it's a straight up vote: yes, no. Does it win? Does it not? Carried on the numbers. These are who we are. These are our numbers. This is Australia. This is what we believe about this issue. We wake up the next day and we say thanks for living in a democracy and for those who are on the other side, who lost a particular argument, you return to that democratic space with vigour and respect, hopefully, to prosecute your argument again in a democratic way. That's democracy. Um, And, you know, it's like uh, you release any of the, the gas from the bottle, and it can be very dangerous, but it, 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 it is it is the space, it is the air that we breathe. That's the challenge of democracy.
0: You've got like a massive amount of content coming out of certain outlets, and they're all supporting a side. How is filtering out the debate equal, or how is it going to help us. Yeah,
1: again, it comes back to us in a democracy to be active participants and how we, um, the choices we make about where we go for that information. Um, yes, there is a, a monopolisation of the big spaces by particular um, organisations with a particular political point of view, um, but you don't have to consume it and people increasingly are not, you know, it would surprise you to know how few people actually read a lot of those publications or watch a lot of that news. I mean, the population of 30 million, we don't get a million people, one million watching one news bulletin. Um, people, are, people are going elsewhere and then people who do read it, they, they don't engage with it necessarily in the way that you arrive. people who are involved in this industry might engage with it, they've got a head full of other things. Now, people are not thinking about the voice every single day. It's, it's football final season and frankly, a lot of people are thinking more about their football team's chances than they are about the voice on a daily basis. That's healthy. That's what a healthy democracy is. Um, but there is a big vote to be had on October 14 and there is, people are, are coming to this in different ways. What does concern me is that there are still a lot of people who are saying they don't know or they're confused. And I think part of that confusion comes from the deliberate diversion and distraction of what has passed from media discussion and debate across the spectrum when it comes to this. One of the things that also disturbs me is that uh, people are far more, when you get into a, a political discussion, a political debate, people target the individual or people seek to go negative or to, uh, to try to prosecute their case by what they see as the failings of another rather than the positive arguments of their own. That's part of the contest of politics. I think people are really tired of that. Whenever I read that or see that personally, I, I turn off. I think a lot of people are. So, you know, you, you're right to raise those questions and the big media organisations carry a lot of weight and they certainly have a lot of impact when it comes to politics. But do they have a lot of influence when it comes to the public? Um, or are the public, you know, smart enough to read, no, move on, make their decisions? Australian democracy um, has been very robust and we've been particularly well served by it When you look at the state of democracies around the world and many of the countries that i've reported from i think there is a danger sometimes in looking at this and seeing it entirely as as an environment that is failing us or is toxic yes there are issues and there is at the worst there is a toxicity and even a, a hatefulness that can get into our public discourse but let's not lose sight of the fact that we are a democracy that has served us particularly well when you look around the rest of the world. And that's why some of the more alarmist comments across the board when it comes to the voice debate, I sort of look past because um, this is not going to tear apart our democracy. This is actually going to be evidence of our democracy in action. Part of a democracy is to accept there are different points of view as long as they are not hateful, inducing violence, um, uh, pivotal, um that there are different points of view that are going to challenge your own or you're going to disagree with. And in a democracy, you may be on, for want of a better phrase, the losing side. And yet you wake up the next day, hopefully committed to the democracy and strengthening that democracy that you have just lost your argument in. So it's um, democracy is hard, and the media's place in democracy is increasingly. More complex in a polarized world where information is is swapped at intense speed. So it's it's yeah, it's incredible.
0: As a media student. Going in and becoming a media practitioner, whether as a journalist or as a broadcaster or working with radio, you have a job to serve the people. You have a job to be the mouthpiece for the people. You are essentially the watchdog. As a media student, I feel uh, my role is to present facts and the actual facts because hyping out will just create fear and tension in the minds of people. So instead, we should just focus on the facts and deliver it.
1: For me personally, I think media industry gives us a very good platform to bring to light the unrepresented minority groups. So for me, in a democracy, I think a journalist and media, they hold authority to like accountability. They are exposing any corruption that occurs in the government level or in any organisational level and inform the public about those so that steps can be taken to counter them.
0: My role is to be uncovering truths and interviewing and investigating and hunting down stories that I think people would be interested in. As a journalism student right now, we want to take the constructive approach in reporting and... How can we do that for the betterment of our democracy? Yeah,
1: look, constructive journalism, um, you know, obviously it interests me because I've, you know, I've made a decision that I believed, as I said when I left Q&A, that we need to think about whether, how, if we can do it better. Um, I think the public is telling us they want us to do it better. I think people are increasingly tired of the way that we present a lot of these arguments, the cynicism, um, the lack of generosity, uh, the, 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 the aggression, the confrontation, the conflict that often sets so much of the media paradigm when it comes to public discourse. So constructive space is not, is not saying we don't have those hard conversations. It's not saying everything has to be positive. It's saying that there is a bigger story There is uh, a much more interesting, nuanced story. Um, It is embracing paradox and contradiction and complexity. Um, It is knowing absolutely what is wrong, but then it is being committed to understanding that and allowing people the information to be able to make decisions about that. Um, I think it requires a really strong moral compass but a generosity as well to be able to engage with people who don't share your worldview within, but within that that moral framework that you bring to it. Now, I, I I think people around the world are telling us that they're looking for a better way. I think they're telling us that, and I and I think one of the great challenges of modernity, and particularly in the world that we live in now the speed of this world, and, and I don't even like to talk about the voice in isolation as an Australian issue because it is part of a wider phenomenon. In a world that we share spaces with people that in other times we would never have even met, in a world of contest, in a world of difference and complexity, in how do you bring peace to that world? How do we see each other in each other, especially when we disagree? These are fundamental challenges and around our world, I think the evidence shows us that, that, uh, that journalism is struggling to carry that weight and our democracies are wilting under that weight and we see this in the, in the democratic recession we're seeing around the world, the decreasing number of democratic states each year and the way that democracies themselves have been damaged from within. Um, but this is the world we live in, and the voice is part of that. I think one thing that's been missing from the discussion is to actually elevate it out of a particularly Australian conversation and to place it into a broader context. And that's a constructive approach, I think, to do it that to do that.
0: I know a lot of people that don't know how to decipher news. They don't know how to tune out the noise.
1: Mm. And you know what? Sometimes that's right. Tune out. Sometimes just turn off for a while. Clear your head. Ask yourself, what, do you, what, are the, your, what are your values? How do you see the world? What do you believe a good and fair and just world should look like? Turn off the news for a while. Think about yourself. Get your moral compass right. Look at your own values. Look to your own families and your communities. Accept that there are people of difference and different views and different opinions. And then re-enter the space with that clarity. We don't have to be engaged 24-7 just because it's on. You don't need to be reading and listening just because it is there. Again, it comes back to that discernment and having a healthy approach. It's like anything. It's like a diet. You don't gorge yourself on everything. And too much of the media is sugar-based. So turn off. Change your diet. Quieten the noise a little. Go back to the fundamental values that you have in your own communities and re-enter that space with a bit more clarity. That's what I'd say to them.
0: That's very good advice. Thank you, Stan.
1: Thank you, Amanda. It's always good to talk to you. I hope people have enjoyed this conversation. Once again, you know, it's hopefully constructive and not destructive.
0: Next week, Stan and I will be discussing how news can be better used to inform rather than divide. We'll also cover how constructive journalism promotes robust community discussion as it strives to obtain the truth. Finally, as the countdown to the referendum continues, we will chat about what the media can do to ensure we, as Australian citizens, are properly informed before going to the polls. Constructive Conversations with Stan Grant was research, edited and presented by me, Amanda Robson. The artwork was created by Sabrina Toe, Alicia McMillan is my executive producer and a special thanks to Stan Grant, the Monash Media Lab and the School of Media, Film and Journalism here at Monash.